So I want you all to think about uh, what you're grateful for on this new year. There's so much to be grateful for. I'm uh, grateful for so much in my life and so many of you who share so much of your lives with me. I want to um, share a story with you that in a slightly different form, uh, Bob Scheibel shared with me. <laughs> you must know Bob. <laughs> anyway, this guy goes in to watch a movie, and when it starts, he realizes that sitting next to the man in front of him is a dog that appears to be following every action in the film intently. In fact, throughout the entire movie, the dog appears to be totally engrossed in this story. He's growling at one scene, and he's shaking his head at the next, and he's turning around in his seat with disapproval. So when the film ends, you know, the guy can't help himself. He goes to the dog owner, and he says, I'm sorry to bother you, but I couldn't help but notice that it really looked like your dog wasn't happy with the movie at all. He seemed to be following the dialogue all right, but it looked like he was disgusted with the whole story. The dog owner looks at the man with a puzzled expression and he says, I know, and I'm really surprised because he loves the book. <laughs> okay, send me your own story if you... No, we're the people of the book, so I thought, how appropriate. And tonight we symbolically open our, our book, the book of life. And for the next 10 days of awe, we are told that we will write the spiritual story of our own lives. It's our own search for meaning, the journal of our choices that we have made over the past year and the choices we hope to make in the year ahead that hopefully will change our lives for the better. When Rosh Hashanah comes each year, we are told, Zayom Hadin, this is the day of judgment. That is, this is the day when we are asked to judge ourselves, to hold up a spiritual mirror of our own failures and successes, our tragedies and our triumphs, and, and then to remember that who we are is literally in our own hands. Every day, at any moment, any one of us can literally choose greatness, sometimes by the simplest act of kindness or a moment's spontaneous decision to open our hearts one to the other. Some of you may have been watching on August 26th when the Little League World Series was broadcast around the world on television. I was watching. And Didi was watching. Actually, she was watching, so I ended up watching. It was the final game. It was Japan versus Tennessee, which already sounds somehow out of balance. <laughs> Japan versus Tennessee. But it was Japan versus Tennessee. And if you watched the game you will know that Tennessee was totally outplayed by the Japanese team who hit home runs in every single inning. The Tennessee team was being so badly beaten and was scoreless, and then all of a sudden, one member of the team finally hits a home run. 
I mean, their team went crazy. When he came around the home plate, everybody was surrounding him and pounding him on the back and clapping him, as you might expect. What happened next, however, was something that nobody expected. The Japanese pitcher, off of whom the opposing player had just hit the home run, came running right into the middle of the Tennessee team, right up to the new home run hitter, and he high-fived him with a big grin. <laughs> high-fived the opposing player with this big grin. And when the game was finally over, and the Japanese team had literally trounced the Tennessee team, with all of the home runs that were hit, and with all of the great plays that were played, and there were many, and all the fantastic moments in the game, what one moment do you think the announcers held up as the highlight of the game? That's right. That moment when the Japanese pitcher walked right into the middle of the opposing team and with a big grin gave a high five to the kid who had just hit the only home run he gave up all game. And you know what the announcer said? The announcer said, look at the great sportsmanship of that Japanese team. Look at the great sportsmanship of that Japanese team. What a fantastic life lesson. The team got credit for great sportsmanship and all because of the spontaneous act of one young boy, one person who made all the difference. And the difference was an expression of character, an act of genuine human empathy across languages, across cultures, across continents, one high five and the world will never be the same for either team. And what about the millions of people who are watching in awe at that very moment when one human being simply reached out to another, high-fiving his way into history, demonstrating what true sportspersonship is really all about? Yes, it has always been all about character. It's about doing the right thing. It's about putting aside petty jealousy, competition, and seeing the common humanity in us all. Every year when the new year arrives, I always think about all those people who we lost since last year, people in our own families and people who are famous. In fact, lots of famous people died this year. Neil Armstrong, Marvin Hamlish, Gore Vidal, Sally Ride, Ernest Borgnine, Stephen Covey, Hal David, Nora Ephron, just among others. But believe it or not, the, the one famous person who died this past year whom I have thought of the most is Rodney King. Not because his videotaped beating and the subsequent trial of the police set off that tragic civil disturbances of 1992. I've been thinking about Rodney King because of his famous plea on camera in the aftermath of those terribly destructive LA riots. A plea that sounded to my ears at the time as so incredibly simplistic that I remember watching him quoted on the news that night and shaking my head at how naive he sounded, how silly I thought he sounded. What was that simplistic, trite comment that in my own, frankly, arrogance I laughed at? We all know. It was Rodney King looking plaintively right into the camera and simply asking, can't we all just get along? Can't we all just get along? And I laughed. And I thought how silly, how naive. 
Well, tonight I say how utterly foolish of me. Just look at where we've gone from there. We are a United States of America that is anything but united. We have a Supreme Court where the majority of decisions now seem to be decided one way or the other by a vote of five to four almost every single time. We have a U.S. Congress so divided and polarized that when the Democrats held a majority right after that stunning election of Barack Obama in 2008, they argued so much among themselves that they were frozen into inaction. And then the Republican Party took over after midterm elections. And the polarization between the parties continued so deep and so corrosive that the Republican leadership announced to the world that its number one goal was not passing legislation at all, but simply doing whatever was necessary to make sure that Barack Obama was a one-term president, period. Can't we all just get along doesn't sound so foolish to my ears anymore. 18th century British author Samuel Johnson once said, when once the forms of civility are violated, there remains little hope of return to kindness or decency. What's happened to us? Israel is such a hot-button issue in the Jewish community that the divide between APAC and J Street has people literally accusing each other of treason against the Jewish people. And every time I see another political ad on television, not even pretending to present any kind of reasoned discussion about any issue of substance, but merely attacking the personal character either of President Obama or Mitt Romney as if one or the other of them is somehow evil incarnate and deviously plotting the ruin of our nation, I really want to scream. Why can't we all just get along indeed? The political commentator Robert Orban said, here is the essence of America. It can be summed up in this simple father-son conversation. The father tells his son that all Americans belong to a privileged class. And the son says, I disagree. And the father says, that's the privilege. <laughs> yes, that is the privilege. It's to learn to disagree without having to be disagreeable. We should be celebrating our differences and not trying so desperately to make them all disappear. Last month, I had the privilege of participating in a press conference with a young Muslim woman named Iman Budlal, who was bringing a suit against the Disney Corporation for harassment and religious discrimination. She was working as a hostess at a restaurant owned by Disney, and because she wanted to honor her religion and cover her head with a scarf, her fellow workers and managers were calling her a terrorist and a camel and a bomb maker. Well, the entire press conference was Iman, her lawyers, and me, the rabbi. And I was there because of all people, we Jews have thousands of years of history experiencing exactly what it's like to be attacked and pointed at and accused of some invidious wrongdoing simply because of our religious traditions. And I wanted Iman and all Muslims who were watching and supporting her to see that it was a rabbi who stood with her in her moment of anguish and despair. Can't we all just get along? I stood with Iman because I believe that human beings are fundamentally the same, regardless of race, of religion, of language, of culture. I believe that is what the Torah has always meant 
when it constantly teaches us that we are made but Selim Elohim in the image of God. And you've all heard me say this before. The Torah has no accepts in its text. It doesn't say we are all created in the image of God except anything, except Muslims, except people who speak Arabic or Spanish, except people of another race, except people who are poor or people who are gay or people who are illiterate or the other political party. Too often we have lamented the apparent lack of moderate Muslim reaction against those extremists who continue to haunt the Muslim world and our world as well. And some of us use it as an excuse to paint all Muslims with the same extremist brush. Two weeks ago, there was what appeared at the time to be an historic breakthrough. An article appeared in the international press with the headline, Jewish Muslim leaders fight bigotry together in Europe. And it described a meeting of 70 European Jewish and Muslim leaders who pledged to show zero tolerance to hate preachers of any faith, including their own. Their message was as clear as it could be, there should be no room for religious intolerance anywhere in Europe. And then, of course, the tragedy of this past week strikes. And once again, we're plunged into that mindless anti-American, anti-West hatred of the radical Islam that erupted in more than 20 countries across North Africa and in the Middle East. Hatred matching hatred. A movie posted on YouTube, The Innocence of Muslims, depicting Muhammad as a womanizer and a child molester, and the U.S. ambassador and two U.S. employees are murdered in Libya and all the stuff you've been watching on TV. From Cairo to Sudan, Tunis to Kuala Lumpur, anger, hatred, violence, just overflows. Really, can't we all just get along? Can't we instead match tolerance for tolerance and respect for respect and rise above anger and resentment and bigotry and hatred? Whether left-wing progressive or Tea Party Republican, Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Clarence Thomas or Barack Obama or Mitt Romney, Bibi Netanyahu or Shimon Peres. Everyone wants a voice. Everyone deserves to have a place at the table. Everyone has a right to our respect, to be treated with dignity, because in our tradition, that's how God would see them all. Everyone wants to be somebody and to have an identity and to belong. There's a wonderful story about William Howard Taft's great-granddaughter who was asked in the third grade to write her autobiography as part of a class lesson. And so the young lady responded, my great-grandfather was president of the United States. My grandfather was a United States senator. My father is an ambassador, and I am a brownie. <laughs> Everybody wants to be recognized for who they are regardless of age. A mental patient was discharged after many years in an institution, but was very unhappy about it. But you're cured, said his doctor. Some cure, the man pouted. When I first came here, I was Abraham Lincoln. Now I'm nobody. <laughs> nobody wants to be nobody. And everybody deserves to be somebody. Hayom harat olam, we say. Today is the birthday of the world. Every birthday is a new beginning. For the world and for us, that's the point of Rosh Hashanah, to start over. That's what it's all about. Remembering that the choice is ours right now and every right now. Remember that we don't ever have to be defined by our worst moments in life or by our past mistakes or by our poor choices because right now, this moment, 
every moment we get to choose again. And choosing how we live our lives is what character is all about. But living your best life is all about what these high holy days are really all about. Yesterday, we read from Parashat Nitzavim in Deuteronomy. We'll read from it again on Yom Kippur. And we echo that ageless challenge that you've all heard over and over, where God says, I set before you this day life and death, good and evil, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your descendants may live and thrive. It's such a simple message. Choose life. Choose blessings. It seems so obvious, but it's perhaps one of the most difficult and challenging of all the choices in life. Why? Because who's to say? Who's to say which of the experiences and the opportunities and the relationships in our lives will turn out to be the blessings and which turn out to be the curses? If it were so easy and so simple and so self-evident, wouldn't we always choose blessings? Of course we would. But it isn't so simple and it isn't so clear and it isn't so always obvious how to tell the difference. I'm willing to bet that every single one of us here has a personal story that would bear this out. For myself, 27 years ago, I was living in the valley and I was looking for a job and I was interviewing at any synagogue that was available, hoping to be hired as their rabbi. And then the perfect pulpit opened up exactly at the right time in exactly the right place, Northridge. <laughs> I knew it was the perfect position for me. I was already in the valley. I had been working as the associate rabbi at Temple Judea for six years already. And I was pretty sure I'd earned a, a reasonably good reputation as a rabbi by that time. I had lots of congregants who were already living in Northridge. And actually, I even knew somebody on the search committee. What could be more perfect? Perfect job, perfect opportunity, perfect blessing. In fact, they were looking for a cantor at the same time, and I was so confident of getting the rabbi position that I encouraged a cantor friend of mine to apply as well so we could end up working together as a team. And I went to the interview with total confidence and knew it was a slam dunk. And sure enough, they hired my friend as their new cantor. <laughs> and they hired my classmate, from rabbinic school as their new rabbi instead of me. And I was devastated. Actually, we were devastated. Life had certainly not turned out the way I expected. I remember so clearly the despair and the sense of failure and the self-doubt. I was certain I was in line for the blessing of that new job and a new life, and instead I got the curse of rejection. And then, of course, this small Reconstructionist congregation in Pacific Palisades called Kehilath Israel announced that they, too, were looking for a new rabbi. And yes, it was only a couple of hundred families in an old, fairly funky building <laughs> with a young 23-year-old cantor who had just started his first full-time job, I think. <laughs> and frankly, it was a congregation that, with what appeared to be a, a huge rather devastating and destructive turnover of professional staff. They'd had three rabbis, three cantors, and three educators within six years. It didn't sound very inviting. But I wanted my own pulpit, and I needed to stay in L.A. So with a big sigh, I threw my kippah into the ring and applied for the position. Who could have known that other than meeting Didi, it would turn out to be the greatest blessing of my life? 27 years later, I'm still here. 
with Chaim starting his 28th year and the amazing Rabbi Bernstein sharing the pulpit with us both and a congregation that you know has grown to a thousand families, quote, the largest Reconstructionist congregation in the world. Blessings and curses, which is which? A relationship falls apart and that leads to meeting your basher, to your soulmate, or a job that you lose leads to you having a new career or a, a position you never would have tried or perhaps even considered. A school or a college you didn't get into ends up leading you to another setting where you find your life's passion. I'm sure there are a hundred other examples that each and every one of us, of you, here tonight, if pressed, could think of your own. That's why our tradition teaches us, choose life in all its messiness and all its insecurity. And that's why I want so badly for all of us this year to do our part to help heal the world by reaching out to someone who thinks differently than you do. Open your hearts, open your minds, open your souls to those who see life through a different lens and trust that seeing the world through someone else's eyes can in fact only expand your field of vision. And that would truly be a blessing. Can't we all just get along? So simple, but so profound. So together, let's give it a try this year. Amen.